0: Well, good morning. As Isaac mentioned at the beginning of the service, my name is Drew Burdett, and I'm your new RUF pastor at Boise State. Uh, it is a joy to be with you all this morning. I've heard so many good things from Brian Fry and Jay Denton and Alex Bosgraf about this congregation. Uh, thank you. You were the ones who started this work, I think, 12 years ago uh, at Boise State. So I'm excited to be here with you. Uh, I did mess up your uh, table out front. I put a sign-up sheet out there, so apologize to whoever set that up so nicely. Uh, if you have gotten or received RUF updates from Jay Denton or Brian Fry and you want to continue to do those, to get those from me, I need you to sign up because I don't know where that sign-up sheet has gotten to in the past, and so I'm sending out our first newsletter this week, so I would love for you to get to receive that. I do it by uh, email, so if you would uh, sign up before you head out, that would be great. You know, one of the questions uh, that I often get when I go to preach, I preach at a lot of different churches, and often I'll finish the service and somebody will come forward. And, you know, I'm hoping that they're going to say, Wow, that was an amazing sermon, changed my life. Or maybe if that's not what they're going to say, maybe they'll say, You know, they'll come checkbook in hand and like, I'm ready to support RUF. Uh, But usually the question that I get is, um, Where are you from? Or if they think that they have like figured out the geographical region that I'm from, they'll say, uh, where are you from, boy? And so usually I respond to those people, Canada, just to throw them off a little bit. But I'll go ahead and and, and spill the the news to you all. I am from South Carolina. Uh, I've actually been in the Northwest now for 10 years. I forgot to mention this, though I'm new to RUF at Boise State. I'm not new to RUF. I was the RUF pastor at uh, University of Washington for eight years and then spent some time doing RUF in Oregon before coming out here. But I grew up in South Carolina, and I grew up in the early 90s there. And and one of the things you need to know, uh, kind of a a fun fact about rural South Carolina in the 90s, is that nobody played soccer. Nobody. So apologize, Isaac and Fernando. who have already told me they love soccer. Um, Which means that I know nothing about soccer. I don't think I knew that people played soccer in America until I was in the 10th grade. Uh, and so when I moved out to Seattle, like everybody loved soccer, everybody played soccer. Um, it was a big deal. And I remember in 2014, I believe it was during the World Cup, there was this big game going on. It was a uh, USA Germany game, and Seattle shut down. Like everybody just took off work. It was at 10 a.m. in the morning, and I didn't want to get left out. And so I was hoping I'd just watch the game so I could fit in, but I didn't have ESPN. And so I started flipping through the channels, hoping that I would find this game on TV somewhere. And I finally found it and felt pretty good about it. It was on Desportes, which is uh, the Spanish ESPN channel. And uh, what I learned that day is that apparently I know less about Spanish than I do about soccer. And so I was just completely lost um, without a friend there to kind of explain the game and what was going on, or at least a commentator in my own language telling me what was happening. I was just completely lost. And so after 30 minutes of trying to, you know, to watch this game, I, I just turned it off and, uh, and walked away, did something else. You know, sometimes some of the stories that we read in the Bible kind of feel like that. Right? You open up your Bible and you start reading a story and you think, without a friend, a pastor, somebody to explain this to me, or without a, commentator, a commentary to kind of tell me exactly what's happening, I am so lost. And the story that we're going to read this morning is in Mark chapter 9. And it's a story of the transfiguration. And it has to be, it easily is one of these stories. It has a lot of of strange things in it. Jesus is transfigured. I can guarantee that nobody in this room used that word this week. It's not a word that we commonly use. What does that even mean? And then not only is there something weird that happens to Jesus, there's also these these figures from the distant past. Moses and Elijah are going to show up. And even his disciples, Peter, James, and John, they're there, and the text tells us they're terrified. They're clearly confused. Nobody knows what to make of this scene. But thankfully, God shows up in this cloud, and he runs commentary on the scene for us. Now, as I read this passage, listen for what God has to say is going on. This is Mark chapter 9. You'll find it in uh, your order of worship. We're going to read verses 2 through 13. And after 6 days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and he led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus and Peter said to Jesus Rabbi it is good that we are here let us make 3 tents one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah So what is the transfiguration all about? Did you hear God's commentary of the scene? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This morning, as we try to unpack what that means to listen to Jesus, I've got two questions for us. The first question we're going to look at is why why listen to Jesus? Like what's so special about him that we should listen to him? And then secondly, if we do agree that we want to listen to Jesus, what does that look like? What does it even mean to listen to him? Now before we jump in, I would love for us to pray and ask for the Lord's help, for his clarity, for his commentary on our own heart this morning as we come to his word. So would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning that we can gather together and uh, worship you. We can pray with one another. We can have, talk about our shared life with each other and also that we get to sit and, and listen to your word and to think about who you are and what you want to communicate to us. And so this morning, Lord, we come to you. We need your help. This is not something that we can do. We need our, the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, and that's not something we can do for ourselves. It's only something that you can do. And so this morning, Lord, as we come to your word, I do pray that you would do just that. That through your spirit, you would work in the, the reading and the teaching of your word, and you would help us to understand you and to grow and to love you more because of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Okay. So we have our two questions. The first question we want to look at is, why listen to Jesus? Um, you know, we live in a time when we have tons of different voices that we listen to anytime and all times. Right? We listen to maybe parents, we listen to teachers, we listen to uh, certain news broadcasts, we have politicians that we listen to, we have certain pastors that we listen to, maybe we listen to our neighbors. You can keep going on and on and on. There's lots of different voices, lots of different opinions that we listen to that inform how we think about life and who we are. And not only that, we have our own opinions, right? We have our own lived experience that we're constantly trying to take into account. And so what happens is we have multiple ideologies that are, and worldviews that are floating around us and in us at all times, demanding our allegiance, demanding our attention. And so the question remains... What is so special about Jesus that would warrant our listening to him above any other voice that we're accustomed to hearing? What is so special about Jesus that our allegiance should go to him? this This isn't a question just for us. Disciples of Jesus always, throughout all ages, have to deal with this question. What is so special about Jesus that we should listen to him above every other voice? Jesus' disciples struggled with this as well. And this is actually the context of the transfiguration. The disciples were struggling to listen to Jesus. You probably call it in our text, it said, after six days. What happened six days before? Well, if you look back in, in, in Mark 8, you'll see the context of our story, and it's a bit of, a, a bit of an argument, a bit of a, a conflict that's going on. If you're familiar with the book of Mark, the first half, the first eight chapters are kind of... Uh, leading us up to understand who Jesus is. And finally, Peter makes this great confession in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus is the Christ. And that's what all the signs are pointing there. And you may be thinking, well, of course we know Jesus Christ. We say it all the time. But Christ was not his last name. It's not a surname. It was a a title. It's his position. And so when, when Peter declares and all the disciples say, yes, you are the Christ, Jesus had to teach them what that meant. It needed to be defined, and so that's exactly what he starts doing. I'm going to read you uh, Mark 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And so Jesus is trying to describe and to tell them who he is as the Christ. And what he is doing in this short little phrase is he's taking two prominent Old Testament characters and he kind of is conflating them together as his blueprint for who he is as the Christ. The first character is the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. This would have been a messianic passage that people would have loved and, uh, to quote and to think about. He comes in power, he comes in glory, and his kingdom has no end. The other character, though, is the lesser known uh, suffering servant of Isaiah 53. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief one who would be wounded for the transgressions of others and suffer greatly for their salvation. Now, this passage was not considered messianic. People didn't really know exactly what to do with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. But Jesus takes these two Old Testament characters, he conflates them together as his blueprint for his position as the Christ, and no one has ever done this before. And Peter, the guy who had just confessed that he's the Christ, cannot listen to Jesus. He hears his description, his definition of the Christ, and he thinks, no, 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 that's not who the Christ is. And so the text actually says that Peter takes Jesus aside, and he rebukes him for saying such nonsense. Right? This is the context of the transfiguration. Peter's rebuking Jesus, the disciples' difficulty to listen to Jesus, and maybe you're not in the habit of, of rebuking Jesus, but we all know how difficult it can be to actually listen to him with all the other voices that are going on. Because Jesus says things that are hard for us. They're hard for us to either accept or they're hard for us to understand. They're hard for us to do. He says things that are like, pick up your cross and follow me. We don't really want to hear that. He also says things that are hard for us to accept, like, I'm your, you, you are mine. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. I will never leave you or betray you. We hear those things, but we have a hard time truly listening to them. So how does the transfiguration of Jesus help us to answer that question, why listen to him? Well, on the one hand, the transfiguration clearly reveals Jesus' great, great power, his, his competence. But on the other hand, it, it reveals his compassion, His humility. And I'm going to argue that we need both of these things if we are going to truly listen to Jesus. We need to see his power and we need to see his compassion for us. So let's start with the first. Let's look at his power. How does this text, how does this event of the transfiguration show us Christ's power? Let me just kind of walk through the details again and and fill in some gaps. The story begins uh, with Jesus taking three of his disciples Peter, James, and John. This would have been his his inner circle, his best friends. And he goes up on a a high mountain to pray. Now, whenever I read high mountain in the Bible, for some reason, I just assume like Big Hill. You know, he went 30-minute hike probably. And so I looked it up this time, and given the area that Jesus is in, most scholars think that this high mountain that Jesus went on was uh, Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon is 9,232 feet high which for some uh, context or reference, Mount St. Helens was about that high before it exploded. So, high mountain. Uh, Jesus takes his buddies, uh, his three best friends, on this kind of prayer hike. There's actually a, a ski lodge on top of Mount Hermon at this point. Now, we don't know how far they made it up the mountain. We don't know if they were at the peak or somewhere along the journey. The transfiguration happens. Jesus is, he's changed Just to kind of get some of the details of what this means, first I want to look at Mark and then some of the other gospel accounts. But Mark says that when Jesus is transfigured, when he's changed, what he notices, uh, probably through Peter, is that his clothes become radiant, intensely white, so as no one on earth could bleach them. So apparently his, his clothes change. He's wearing whatever Jesus would have wore to go on this hike beforehand, but all of a sudden now he has these radiant, glowing, shining clothes. Luke adds in his account, his, his, his account of Jesus' life and death that his face was altered. That somehow when you looked at Jesus, he did not quite look the same. He looked differently. And then Matthew adds, and not only did he, he describes how his face changed, he said that his face shone like the sun. And so the picture here is that all of a sudden, Jesus is completely transformed. He's transfigured before them. His clothes are changed. His face is changed. And he's just radiating this light from him. And then, if that's not enough, two figures from the, back, from the past, Moses and Elijah, appear. And we don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. I don't know if they were wearing name tags or if there was any sort of greetings or salutations. But it was Moses and Elijah. And these were big deals in the Old Testament. So it have been Peter, James, and John's kind of heroes of the faith, people that they would have grown up listening to. You know, Moses, he is the one who stands behind the first five books of the Bible. He is a, a savior of a type of, of Israel right, as he delivers God's people from Egypt. He has his own mountain uh, top experience in Mount Sinai, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then you have Elijah. Elijah is one of the greatest prophets, and he also has this savior-type role in Israel. Uh, He delivered Israel from the worship of Baal. He also has a mountaintop experience on Mount Sinai as well. And so you can imagine, you're Peter, James, and John. You're a week away from uh, this conflict that you had. You're going on this hike. Maybe you're you're, you're enjoying your time with Jesus, and then this happens. Uh, Of course they're going to be terrified to see this scene ahead of them. But you can imagine for, for these three men, this was a big deal. This was amazing. Peter is saying in the text, I'm so glad that we are here to witness this and see this. If you would have asked them, Peter, James, and John, who would you like to get stuck in an elevator with? They probably would have, probably would have answered Moses and Elijah, right? These were the people who they had listened to, who they had followed all the days of their life. And for Peter, he looks and he has Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. He has to think, this is my all-star lineup. The kingdom of God is a go. You know, we had that weird thing with Jesus last week, but now Moses and Elijah, they can coach Jesus on what it means to be the Christ. Everything is good. And then the cloud overshadows them, interrupts Peter. And God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Not Moses, not Elijah, the one with the shining face, Jesus. Listen to him. Now as you as you hear the story, you may be thinking, This story sounds familiar. Does it have an old testament parallel? And and it does. In Exodus chapter thirty four, we can read about a parallel story with, with Moses that has a lot of the same features. Uh, Obviously, Moses is there. Uh, There's a high mountain, Mount Sinai. God shows up in a cloud and he speaks. Uh, And then, as Moses comes down off the mountain, his face is shining. He's reflecting the glory of the Lord. And there's a lot of parallels, but there's one glaring difference. And the glaring difference is is, is timing. When when Moses' face is, is shining... It is after he had been in the presence of the Lord for a long time. And what we see about this is that Moses' face was not changed. Moses was not transfigured. He was simply reflecting the glory of God as we see the moon reflects the light of the sun. But Jesus, his face was shining like the sun before the cloud showed up. And he's the only one who is shining as well. Now, why is that important? It's important for us because it highlights that Jesus was not reflecting the glory of God. Light is radiating out of him like the sun itself. And so what the transfiguration reveals is that Jesus is not an ordinary human being like you and me, that we should listen to him. It also it's not that he's a great human being like Moses and Elijah That we should listen to him. What the Transfiguration is showing us is that Jesus is in a category all by himself, that he is God Almighty in the flesh. And it is that fact that warrants that we should listen to him because there is no one else like him. And this is what Christians have believed for thousands of years. This is one of our core beliefs, that that Jesus is the Christ and that he is God. One of our creeds puts it this way. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. And so what we see in the transfiguration for this tiny little moment is actually Jesus uncloaked. It is Jesus as he truly is, God in the flesh, completely competent, completely powerful, completely worthy of our complete trust. And we're going to need that if we're going to listen to him. But the transfiguration also highlights for us not just his power, his competence, but also his compassion. Look at verse 8. We read, And suddenly, looking around, They no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. When the cloud and these famous people from past and the the radiant clothes had gone away and the glory of God is kind of veiled again, there's just Jesus standing in front of them. And here's what these three men had to put together. They had just heard from the cloud, from God the Father, that Jesus was God's beloved Son That he was clearly uh, in a category all along. He was greater than the greatest men they had ever heard of. But they also had to put that together with the fact that Jesus was their friend. He was the the, the guy who invited them to go hiking and praying that morning. He was the one who had given them nicknames. Peter the Rock, James and John, Sons of Thunder. He was the one who had prayed with them and who had fed them, who had laughed with them, who had lived with them every day. And though he was not one of them, it was very clear that he was for them. And so the transfiguration, it doesn't just show us Jesus' power, it does that, but it also highlights for us the depths of his compassion, that he is for us and that he wants to be with us. I mean the mere fact that Jesus who was fully God and holy and righteous is standing on this mountain with with Peter the one who had rebuked him a week before gives us a picture of the depths of his compassion. It shows us his his heart who he is that he is willing to draw near to needy, broken, even rebellious people. And and the transfiguration it just keeps with this theme of the of the New Testament that, that Jesus isn't just able to save. It's not just that he is capable of, to save, but that he is willing to save. And there's a distinction there. We've already talked about this. We read it at the very beginning of the service about how Jesus describes his own heart. In Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, we hear him say this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland sees this passage kind of like an unveiling. If the transfiguration is an unveiling and we see who Christ really is in his core, that he is God of God of the same essence as the Father. In this passage, as Jesus describes his own heart, it is an unveiling and an uncloaking as well. If you look at the front of your order of worship, I want to read this uh, short quote from his, his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says that in the one place, the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. So why listen to Jesus? With all of the other noise, with all of the other voices, whether they are outside of you or whether they are inside of you, what is it about Jesus that warrants that we should listen to him above any other voice? It is these two things. It is his amazing power coupled with his great compassion. And we have to have both of these or if we're going to truly listen to Jesus. You know, I can't... Think of the Transfiguration uh, without thinking about Bilbo Baggins and Gandalf the Grey uh, from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, there's this wonderful scene if you've read the books or if you've seen the movies in The Fellowship of the Ring, where good old Hobbit Bilbo Baggins, he's at his one hundred uh, and eleventh birthday. and he puts on his, his magical ring that he has, which is his favorite possession and everything that he has. He puts it on, he disappears. He's going to go on his final last journey. And so he sneaks out of his party that way, and you see him at his hobbit hole, and he's quickly grabbing all his stuff because he is ready to get out of town, make haste on this adventure. But then there's this knock on the door, and it's Gandalf the Grey. And uh, he comes into this little hobbit hole, and he kind of fills up the entire house. And apparently they had made an arrangement beforehand that when Bilbo was leaving, that he would leave his magical ring behind to his nephew. And so Gandalf says, Bilbo, the ring, where is it? And he says, oh, it's on the mantle. No, actually, it's here in my pocket. And he reaches down, and he puts his hand in his pocket, and he he has the ring in his hand. And he says, now that it comes to it, I don't think I can give it up. In other words, I am not going to listen to you any longer. I know you want me to leave this ring, but I refuse to listen to the ring because... Let's leave this ring because it is my favorite possession, my precious. And Gandalf says, you need to leave the ring. Goes back and forth a couple of times. And finally, Bilbo reaches for his sword as he is ready to kill Gandalf the Grey to save uh, his ring. And Gandalf says, it will be my turn to be angry soon. And you will see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. And at least in the movie, when he says that, he swells in size. And you see him for Not this little old wizard, but the powerful wizard that he is. There's peals of thunder, and there's lightning it's flashing. And you see his power. But then he comes back down, and he says, I am your friend. I am here to help you, not to hurt you. Give me the ring. And it's only then, when Bilbo sees both the power of his friend, and his wisdom, and his might, coupled with his compassion, that he is for him and not against him, He drops his most prized possession on the floor, leaves it behind, and walks out the door. He listens to his friend. And I think the same is true for us in Jesus. If we just see his power, we'll never listen to him because we're not sure if he's actually for us. If we just see his compassion, we won't listen to him because we'll think, well, he's just one voice amongst many. To truly listen to him, we have to see both. The beauty of the incarnation, God in the flesh, is that Jesus is different than us, and yet he is one of us. He is full of power and strength and wisdom. He is God, and yet he is also slow to anger. He is present with us when we fail. He is gentle and lowly in heart, and there's no one like him. So Jesus is the only person who warrants our undivided attention and our hearts. We're called to listen to him. But how do we do that? What does it even mean to listen to Jesus? There's a lot of things that we could say. Obviously, you have to know what he has to say. You have to be in the word. But briefly, as we kind of wrap up the sermon, I want to talk about where listening begins and where listening ends. Listening begins when we respond to what Jesus is saying. The key word there being respond. Now, I have benefited from counselors saying that there's a difference between reacting and responding, I think we all know the difference and can spot it, right? When somebody says to you at, at the table, "Hey, I think you were a jerk to the server," do you do you react or do you respond, right? Reacting when we say, "Oh, really? Well, I think you were a jerk when blah blah blah," right? We don't really respond. Responding is when we say, "Why do you think? I don't think that, but why do you think that? Like, what did I do? Tell me more about where you see this at." We don't just blow off the comment; we respond. Now we know that we've began to listen to Jesus when we take the time to process through what He has had to say in His Word. And the beauty of, of, of this passage is that we see this immediately happening in the disciples' life. This is what they do as they're hiking down the mountain. Look at verses nine through ten. Because as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves. Questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. I mean, surprisingly to us, you know, a lot has just happened, but Jesus immediately brings them back to the conversation that happened six days before that the Son of Man uh, must raise from the dead. And even as the story we won't talk about, it, but as the story continues, they start wanting to ask questions about Elijah, and Jesus answers those questions, but then he keeps saying to them, Well, why does the scripture say that the Son of Man must suffer? Apparently to Jesus, he sees his suffering on the cross and his resurrection from the dead as vital to what he wants us to hear. And amazingly, this time, instead of rebuking Jesus, like Peter had done six days before, this time they listen, they respond, they process, they question in their hearts what this might mean. And that is the first step to listening. We respond. We take time to to hear his words, to understand them and to ponder what what they might mean. We don't reject them. We don't dismiss them. We slow down and respond to them. What is it that Christ is wanting you to hear this morning? That maybe you have been rejecting. Maybe you have been dismissing. It could be something about who he is and his character who he is and his divinity. It could also be something about who he is as the Savior and what that means. Or well, what it means that he is your Lord and is calling you to follow him. Can you imagine what it would look like as instead of just kind of dismissing those things and pushing them out of our minds, we slowed down enough to respond, to hear him and to listen to him. That is where listening begins. It begins with simply responding to his Word. It ends, though, with accepting His words as truth, where we take His truth and make it our own. A few years ago, I was uh, flying home from an RUF training, and I don't really like flying because I always I, f- I feel like my flight always gets canceled, and then I end up taking two days to get home. And so I'm sitting in the airport. I'm already a little bit nervous, and I hear my name called over uh, over the loudspeaker: "Drew come to the ticket counter." And so I'm like, great. They've overbooked the flight. I'm off the flight. You know, I'm, I'm catastrophizing. So I go up to the counter, and they just tell me, hey, you need to, uh, we need to, we need to switch your ticket. And so I was like, oh, this is easy. I handed them my ticket. They handed me another ticket. I left. I went and sat down. And then they started uh, boarding the flight. And I thought, okay, I should look and see what group I'm in. And I'm always at the back of the plane. That's the only seat that's ever available to me, like 34B, the very back, right by the bathroom. And so I looked down, and my new ticket said, one B somehow I had been bumped to first class and this had never happened to me so I, I got up and I'm like this is this is surreal right so I walk up and I hand them my ticket I'm sure they're gonna tell me no you don't belong here and so I handed them my ticket and they're like welcome on board mr. Burdett. and so I came down the aisle and uh, I remember I walked in and I just there's my seat As soon as I got on the plane and so I sat down and I felt so awkward Because I was looking around at everybody else in first class, and I thought, they belong here, right? They paid for this ticket, and they know, they know I don't belong. They're all looking at me thinking, man, this joker has, you know, 34B written all over him. Like, he needs to be at the back of the plane. (laughs) And so the, the flight attendant, she comes forward immediately, and she's like, can I get you something to drink? And I said, no, 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 I'm fine. And I had resolved in my heart that, okay, I'm sitting here, but since I didn't pay for this ticket, I'm not really. I'm just going to pretend that I'm in the back of the plane. You know, I want the 34 row 34 experience. You know, don't bring me anything to drink right now. Like, wait till I fall asleep. If you can, run over my foot and my elbow with that cart. That is what I want. And then I started thinking, this is ridiculous. I have a ticket with my name on it. This is my seat. Nobody knows. And when am I ever going to have this opportunity again? I was like, I'm going to accept this. This is this is my lot in life for the next hour and a half. And so I raised my hand. I was like, you said something about a drink menu. And it was the best flight that I've ever had <laughs> once I accepted it. it that, that is the goal for listening. We want to go from responding, but ultimately accepting it as our reality for life. And with Peter, you know, we get to see his his progress. It didn't happen overnight, right? He goes from rebuking Jesus to six days later, questioning, pondering, biting his tongue. But if you fast forward 30 years, we have, uh, from our perspective, we can see that he got to accepting what Jesus had to say about being the Christ. I want to read just a short two, three verses from 1 Peter, the letter of Peter's. And what is he doing? What he, what he is doing here is he, is he is riffing off of Isaiah 53, the passage that he rebuked Jesus for using. Here's what he has to say about Jesus the Christ. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He got it. He listened to Jesus, and it took time. The end goal of listening is accepting what Jesus has to say as truth. We just asked, is there anything that Jesus has said in his word either who he is or what he has come to do or how he wants you to grow or what he wants you to do with your own heart that maybe you've been dismissing or flat out rejecting. Listen to him. Begin with responding. Slow down. Talk to him about it. But as we do so, let us move towards accepting his words as truth because there is no one like him. He is in a category all by himself. And clearly, if we take this passage uh, from Mark, the transfiguration, it is clear that the most important thing that Jesus wants us to accept, to listen to, is the same message that he was given to Peter and to James and to John. And it's that he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The good news that Jesus brings to us is that we need a Savior and that He is that Savior. He is the powerful Son of Man of Daniel 7, and He is the compassionate, suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He came not uh, to be served, but to serve as to give His life as a ransom for many. He came to give His life that we may truly live, and He calls us to embrace Him, to learn to listen to all that He says. Because we will find no one else as competent or as compassionate. He is the beloved Son of God. And as such, we are called to listen to him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, as we come to you this morning, we are reminded from this story. You are, you are not just one of us. That in that moment... Of the transfiguration that when you are uncloaked, that we get to see you just for a glimpse for who you truly are. You're God. The creator, the sustainer, the savior of all things. And so, Lord, as I pray as we as we meditate on that thought, and as we think about you, that we would that we would we would see you as you truly are. That you are not one of us in one sense, because you are greater. And yet also. We would see that you are one of us. That though you are fully God, you are also fully man. And in that, we see your true heart. That you are both able and willing to save. Lord, may that turn our hearts, may that win us, that we would listen to you and give you glory. Lord, we pray for your help in this, in Christ's name. Amen.